Ramble. Welcome to Curious with Josh Peck. Start the show. Welcome back to the Curious Podcast with me, your host, Josh Peck, and you, the listener, and that's what you do. You listen, and I talk, and here we are. Come on. I mean, is this great? Kinda. What am I thinking about? What are my innermost thoughts? How do I feel? What am I connected to? What instigates some sort of emotion inside of me that I feel necessary to convey to you. Coachella was this weekend and fuck that. I think it's just as annoying to be really for Coachella as it is to be like the anti-Coachella. But for the most part, I don't know. It just seems totally co-opted by all the wrong things. And I just, I, I don't know. I don't get it. I'm not the one. Not the one at the music festival. Even when I was sans child and wife, I wasn't there gallivanting in some sort of uh, trendy outfit, not listening to music, trying to get the best photo op. Because that's what it's become. Uh, it's a big photo opportunity. It's very interesting. The whole thing. It's just very... I wonder, you know, God forbid if something happened at Coachella, like what would, what would happen to the internet? Would Instagram shut down? I mean, if everyone just like, like if literally aliens came down and abducted all of Coachella, would like Instagram cease to exist? Would they, would they like shut their doors and be like, it was a great run. Mark Zuckerberg. Oh, Jesus. Is that unprofessional? My goddamn phone. Jesus, what's so important? Let me check my phone. I have a child now, so I need to... You know what I mean? It's not, you, don't, you don't leave uh, missed calls. You don't... Uh, you know, you don't leave missed calls. You don't leave uh, text messages unread for too long because your kid might have, you know, choked on a friggin' grape and be in the ICU. God forbid. But what would happen to Instagram if all the if all the influencers and pretty people just disappeared? It would be awful. Mark Zuckerberg comes out on CNBC. He's like, listen, it was a great run, but we're after seven wonderful years, we're we're shuttering the doors on good old IG. It's been great, but we can't do it anymore. Those fucking aliens. They stole everyone with more than 100,000 followers. Oh, God. Ah, uh, well, well. I'm glad people have fun. Listen, just because it's not my thing doesn't mean it can't be their thing, even though I think everyone should want the exact same thing that I do. And anyone who doesn't act uh, accordingly is a fucking joker. Um. Oh, speaking of not acting accordingly, a friend of mine, uh, I was out with a friend the other night and we were at this bar and, and they were with some friends who I didn't know and I'm not a drinker so I don't find myself out at establishment surrounded or like you know centered around the good old uh, happy juice you know what I'm saying I don't find myself out too many times in any kind of you know sort of cantina a tavern a pub a beer garden of you know it's just not my it's not my jam I am not a purveyor of liquored goods but I was out with a buddy and they had some friends there and <laughs> and one of their girlfriends walked up to me. He was like, hey, are you, you I know, you, are you the guy from Nickelodeon? Are you that guy from that Nickelodeon show? 
And uh, my buddy was like, no, 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 this is my friend, Josh. Like, what? You you know that's my friend. Like, why are you, huh? And then they sort of looked over and were like, ah, man, you messed it up. I wanted to fuck with him. <laughs> Come on. I was just about to totally, completely, utterly fuck with him. And you got in the way. Dang it. Hilarity diminished by you. <laughs> Comedy ruiner. And I just was like, I hate you. Man, instant hate. Instant hate. Because I just don't know what goes through people's minds. And granted, it's not that big of a deal. I'm very honored that I've done something that people care about. And they continue to care about. And without them and my journey throughout my life and my work, I wouldn't be here with you. So I'm grateful for all of it. Because I need to give that qualification. Otherwise, I'm a jerk. But I just, like, I don't know what goes through people's heads. Like, what part of me, like, would have, would, like, <laughs> how did they think they were going to endear me to them by busting my balls in that way? First of all, what made them think that that was even slightly original? And then what part of them made them think, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring up the show that gets brought up to him every day of his life that he did 12 years ago that he's very proud of. But, you know, definitely, you know, he did a pretty big thing in his life. I'm going to bring it up in like this funny, jovial way. And he is going to look at me and go, <laughs> you know what? I see instantly that you are a person of worth that I want to get to know better. Because I... <laughs> I don't know where that comedy rapid fire came from, but I want some more. I don't know what goes through people's heads. So I just kind of, I just, I just did the right thing and said, nice to meet you. And again, I don't care. You know, listen, I am, I am grateful that people love the show and that, you know, whatever that, listen, you guys know me. I appreciate it all, but God, sometimes just people are very overly aggressive in the wrong ways. For what reason? Is it ego? Is it like... I was at the Mall of America last week, and I don't know, you know, it was... I was there, I was with Buick in Minneapolis doing like some brand deal for the Final Four, uh, which was very fun. Buy a Buick. This is a free plug. They make excellent cars. I'm a fan, just saying. I'm giving them a free plug because I believe in their vehicles. But... I was at the Mall of America, and this guy comes over to me and goes, listen, my girlfriend's a big fan. I'm not. Will you take a picture with me? And I'm like, my guy, wh why did you have to phrase it like that? What the fuck? Like, I don't know if in his head he was trying to, like, put me at ease to be like, listen, like, we're just bros. I don't give a fuck. Like, we're cool. We could be homies. We could, like, roll one up, chop it up. You know what I'm saying? Get real deep or whatever, whatever. I don't know why I'm talking like that. I don't know whether he was trying to put me at ease by being like, it's all good, so don't trip, but just like, can I get a quick photo? But like, what he really did was just sort of hurt my feelings. <laughs> I was just like, okay, well, how do, like, of course I'm so insecure, so first and foremost, I'm like, how do I make you a fan? Why aren't you a fan? Why, you should, everyone should like me, because I need to fill this unfillable hole in my soul. Through money, power, prestige, and romance. And I know it'll never get full, but I don't care. I'm sure that if you decided you liked me right here in this moment, I'd feel better for 
few minutes. Um, but yeah, I don't know where that came from or why he did it like that, but it didn't feel good. But people are people. And again, did I did I mention how appreciative I am that people know me at all? <laughs> um, because it you know allows people to listen to the podcast, and this is all I really care about. I'm quite serious, and if you love the pod, that means the most to me. So feel free to ever bring that up in public, or don't bring up anything, because you could just we could just talk about sports. Or politics. Or your likes and dislikes. Why do we always have to talk about me? I'm not even that interesting. On today's show, Mark Romanic, preeminent music video director, one of the greatest ever live, has worked with David Bowie and Michael Jackson and Jay-Z and Beyonce, Johnny Cash. Heard of him? He also directed two of my favorite movies, one of which is One Hour Photo with Robin Williams and... I just, I'm, I'm, it was such a pleasure and an honor to speak with him. He's so talented, so smart. And uh, again, this is one of the great benefits of getting to do this pod is getting to talk to some of my heroes. Um, So please enjoy Mark Romanic. Roxy, do you speak? Come on, Rox, give us something. Did anyone ever teach you to speak? Speak. I don't think we ever taught you that, did we? Some a famous dog, like uh, like Air Bud. <laughs> Come on. Um, so I, can I paint the picture here for the listeners real quick? Are we starting? Oh, yeah. Okay. So uh, I've been blessed with Mark coming here to you know be interviewed on the pod. He's brought his dog, Roxy, a purebred a labradoodle. labradoodle. Yes, she's a purebred Labradoodle. We should probably be taking in rescues, but we fell in love with a Labradoodle, so... It happens. We have three Labradoodles at home. And you're dealing with a bit of a migraine. Uh, it's it's fading, so I'm okay. I oh, think, yeah? yeah? Do you get I, do you get those? Um, about, I get them about five, six times a year. They're, they're very ocular, where, like, my... Uh, my peripheral vision starts to blacken. Mm. It's real fun. Sounds great. Yeah, I enjoy it immensely. I got one once, only once in my life. And of course, having the Jewish mother that I do, she's like, well, we'll be seeing a neurosurgeon. Right. So <laughs> we go to this this doctor, uh, the neurologist, and he puts me through a litany of tests, like an hour worth of stuff. And then finally, he starts asking me these questions and he gets to this one. He says, well, what did you eat that day? And I said, oh, I had some Chinese food for lunch. And he goes, that was it. MSG. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a syndrome. Interesting. Yeah. Well, people people rarely look for the simplest solutions first, I find. Right. Um, well, at least they found out what it was. 500 bucks later, I had to realize that I can't <laughs> eat my favorite food anymore. Expensive meal. Damn it. Um, do you, are they, do you think like the migraines are from stress? Like, are you... I've tried to kind of uh, figure out if there's any sort of commonality to the circumstances, but there, I haven't really no. found any. So, you know, you have this reputation for being very exacting and precise. And when you work as hard as you do, do you find, like, so maybe it's not migraines. Are there any, is there any sort of collateral damage? Do you get run down? Do you? I mean, you know, I don't know. I've always find that reputation uh, odd because it's sort of the job. Mm. Like if you're a director, you're you, you're 
uh, you're expected to be making decisions for a reason about various details of what you're doing, and you want to try to get it right. And it seems to me that applies to any kind of craft where you're, where you're taking the craft seriously. Um, I, I think that's kind of a load of shit that got developed over time for some reason because it was a good soundbite. I mean, if anything, I'm I'm been very blessed by. Um, I think I have been able to work with such immensely talented people. Uh, and I'm good at casting, not, not just on camera, but behind the camera. And I, I'm not that micromanaging, actually. If you ask the people that work with me, I love to see what people are bringing to it. And, and um, I, over the years, I've learned to really get out of the way of it a lot. You know, there's, um, there's many times where you just don't have to say a thing because it's going great. And they brought something, when I say they, like a, an actor or a production designer and editor has an idea that you couldn't have ever thought of. And the more you let people alone, as long as they're very talented, you know, I think when you, when you're working with up and coming people or you haven't really developed those relationships, maybe you have to be a little more uh, proactive about those decisions, but I'm pretty loose in a way, actually. Well, I think, but you want it to be alive. You don't want it to be a bunch of decisions that look like they've been you know, carefully made, you want the thing to have a life. And so that's a decision too. I think I'm exacting in the beginning so that everyone's got the same roadmap and we all are after the same tone or we're all aiming for the same kind of fresh idea that we're after. And then how people get there is part of the fun of just watching how that happens, not making it happen a certain way. And, and not, you know, to me, it seems as though the auteurs of, of, of this day and age, like my buddy is um, Brad Pitt's stand-in, no big deal. And so- That's a big deal. Yeah, it's not bad. He actually really looks like him too. And so he just finished, you know, Tarantino's film and he, you know, and of course me being the nerd that I am, I'm like, just tell me everything. Like, what's it like to be around that energy? And he said, what's so refreshing about someone like Tarantino is how specific he is, Mm -hmm. like how much he knows what he wants and that's something that might- otherwise be discarded by another filmmaker, like a small bit of uh, prop usage or, or set design or whatever really affects him. And he feels as though it's important to make sure that these certain things are in place. But he's like, it's a pleasure because you feel like you're fulfilling this guy's vision. Yeah. And so when he's a little bit, you know, particular, you just feel as though, well, I'm here serving the bigger picture. I think if you if you have a, a faith that those decisions are being made for a reason, it's not just sort of subjective, like, oh, I, I like polka dots and I don't like stripes. But it's like, well, the stripes are going to help the scene and the meaning of the scene for this reason. And, and you know, if there's a reason behind it, you know, then then you, you do want to fulfill that because everybody wants to be working for that same goal of, you know, affecting the viewers powerfully. I mean, I find a lot of my job is kind of taking things away too, because uh, it's like an orchestra conductor or or a chef. You know, you just don't want everybody to play be playing solos, right? Because then you get a cacophony. You know, and so you have to know when to dial people down and say, "This is the aspect of this that needs to pop," and and you need to kind of. Yeah, I mean, it's different in. Every, it's not only different for every director; it's different for every situation. Um, but I think every director will probably tell you. Maybe that's a bold statement that you know, you're 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 constantly modulating um, uh, your vision 
being fulfilled with a, a real openness to what's going on in the moment and what's uh, what accidents happen or like you say like you know some guy brings a lamp onto the set and there's something about the light that it gives or the shade that's so amazing that you decide to light the whole scene from it or you know you got to be open in the moment Adaptable. it's like a vision with margins for uh, you know adjustments and well, it's something you you had spoken about as well um, in your the you know when you were working with Mick Jagger and you created that incredible rig for the music video and they still use that rig like decades later it's really? still like I always felt like I should we should have gotten a are you getting credit for that no I, fuck the credit I I wish we had gotten like a, a what do they call it a residual royalty royalty yeah every time that's some it. bullshit. <laughs> I know some lawyers in North Hollywood. We can handle that quick. Yeah, because I just actually I did a commercial about a year ago and, and we decided, hey, let's do that shot for this one shot. And they brought the rig and it was the exact same rig. And that was like 15 years ago. And they were joking around like, yeah, this is that rig that you designed with your producer. I'm like, yeah, like how much money have you made off of that? And <laughs> is it like labeled by like, is it called like the techno rig now or something? Uh, yeah, probably. I don't know what they call it, but it was all, it was a very simple thing is that all of those rigs were built so that the camera was like right up in someone's face. And I said, I just want to get a wider shot. So how do we arm that away from the body? And so we had to create a counterweight in the back and it was done with carbon fiber tubes to keep it light. And, you know, we des we designed that, yeah. Anyway, I interrupted your question. No, so something like that, you, you spoke about how you like to give yourself sort of a governor or limits to work within and then, you know, sort of find the best solutions within that small sphere. Will you speak to that? Like, you know, finding the creativity within limits? Yeah, I mean, it's different for music videos and commercials and movies. There's different kind of um, sets of rules you can create for yourself. Um, I think you, the rules can be, you know, uh, how do I talk about that? I don't know. I mean, I love though, I love, but I don't know that that's such an original idea. I mean, you really have to, it can't just be whatever you want. There has to be some sort of framework that focuses the idea of what you're doing, whether it's for two hours or two minutes or 30 seconds, there has to be a aesthetic concept. And I guess you can call them rules, but, uh. Yeah, I don't know how to, what to say about it, really. So, like, I, I'm always fascinated by people who are, you know, you Mark, you have clout. Like, you're the dude. <laughs> you, you've worked with the best. You're considered the best or one of the best. Is there any concept of that? Does that even, like, does that strike you in any way? Or you're just, are you still the artist that you've always been? Like, what, what does that feel like to be the goal? Well, I mean, I don't, I'm very grateful uh, and I feel like I've been incredibly blessed and I'm constantly still pinching myself that, you know, I got to work with David Bowie or Trent Reznor or whoever. Um, and those experiences, even outside of the making of the thing, have been, you know, in, in great, you know. Uh, and I'm, but I, I've, I have this sense that I, I became a bit of a big fish in a small pond because I, I really just, I really only wanted to make movies. And for me, the music video thing was kind of a, a overly extended tangent that became so successful, I almost um, just couldn't stop. Like, because I would say, look, I really need to focus on making movies. And then you'd get a track from whoever, you know, a new track from 
Johnny Cash or you go, well, I can't turn that down. And that just kind of kept going on for 15 years. And I feel like I missed some of my prime uh, filmmaking time making these short pieces, which uh, I know, you you know, a, a movie isn't, isn't objectively better or more important or than a, a short film, but it's all filmmaking. But my, my personal aspirations were to be a feature film director and I haven't made as many of them as I would have liked. And I'm still focused on trying to do more, more of that. But I do run into and get emails from a lot of young filmmakers or film students who say they were inspired by my music videos. And that is the greatest thing ever. That's fantastic. And I, I don't, I don't take that for granted. Movement time pieces. It's time to move yourself into a beautiful new watch. Stop what you're doing. Look down at your left wrist because our friends at Movement Watches have got exactly what you're missing. Movement has you covered with tons of quality, clean, and all-around good-looking watches and accessories that we can actually afford in order right from our couch. I mean, you know, we all want that dope timepiece because a watch says a lot about a person. You know what I mean? But you don't want it saying, geez, where'd that guy get that thing? <laughs> In a freaking cereal box? Exactly. Okay, look, I'm really into their new Odyssey collection because it's like, it's clean and minimal, but it kind of, it has this like dope hexagonal shape. I believe that's the right shape. I'm not an educated man. I think it's a hexagon. So it like makes just like the slightest statement, but it also like you could wear it to the office and not get any weird looks except dang, where did you get that incredible timepiece? Anyway, they have tons of sunglasses. They, uh, and then they offer interchangeable watch straps. So you never run out for options for a new look. I'm telling you, and accessories are a great gift. You know what I mean? If you're not exactly sure what someone likes, you know what they do like? Options. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, movement watches start at just $95, so you're guaranteed to find something you love that won't break your bank. These guys are truly a, a ground-up entrepreneur success story. They understand living on a tight budget because they lived it too, and that's why they wanted to make quality products that are accessible to everyone. They've got over 2 million sold watches across more than 160 countries, and their collections are always expanding for you. Get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to mvmt.com slash curious. See why movement keeps growing. Check out their expanding collection. Go to mvmt.com slash curious. Join the movement. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Do you ever think about the films that perhaps you would have made over the that 15-year span that you were focusing on music videos? Well, there's a lot of them I'm still trying to make and still hope to make and, and almost made and they fell apart. So um, what was the question again? Like, was there a story, like, was there a... A specific story that was, uh, pro, you know, powerful to your 30s or a specific time in your life where you're like, this is would be the time that I want to tell this. Very but few of them were uh, context specific or age specific or, mm. or era specific, maybe because I'm drawn to things that just would play 
you want to try to make things maybe that are aren't going to be limited by being too topical or too um, specific in that way. So all of the ones that I've been wanting to make, I'm still working on trying to make. Some of them are probably dead and others I still hope to make one day. There's one, the longest one is a uh, is a kind of a, a Kafka's comedy I've been wanting to make with Ben Stiller. And I've been wanting to make that for an embarrassing l- amount of time. And it's just getting the right script and the right moment and, and the right situation for financing, you know, is n- now may, after literally something like 20 years, may be happening and... There's several of those. So when you're a young filmmaker and you, you, you have experience making... I don't know what my phone might have been. No worries. Maybe that's me. I am good. Um, like, so you have this experience, you know, making movies and being a young filmmaker and you get the call from David Bowie to make this music video. What do you, what, what do, you do? Do you die? Are you shitting yourself? Are you like, how do I prepare for this? Or is it... Is there a strange sort of calm to it? Um, the first reaction is, you know, throwing confetti and popping champagne and like, fuck yeah, I'm going to work with David Bowie. And then, you know, uh, in that instance, I mean, that it's funny you picked that one because that was probably one of the ones that was the most mind-blowing when I got that call. Oh, and yeah. um, I also got a call. I did a lot of Apple. I did all, uh, most of those Apple iPod silhouette dancing commercials in the in the knots. Those are great commercials. Those were so fun to do. But I got a you know I would get a call from the the agents. There was like Apple ha- had and still has like this bespoke agency called the Media Arts Lab, and um, they they would call up every few months. And but it was very secret, so you had to drive over there, and then you were going to find out once you got through the security into the conference room and the door was locked. They would tell you what the project was, and they said Paul McCartney. And I went, fuck yeah, that's so going to be so great. I guess I'll do it. Yeah, and so things like that. So, um, but no, you know, but then you go. What I found is that um, um, people in that position, which are basically these kind of mega charismatic mega stars, um, they can't function and get anything done unless they've really developed over the years a way of putting people immediately at their ease right. with that issue. You've probably run into that. Oh, yeah. And it's very, and they're usually really good at it. And and so that's what almost always happens. Is And I, I can't, I don't know if I can describe to you what the technique is. It's sort of a mystical thing that they do, but they have to do it or else people would just be gaga drooling and, and mumbling and nothing would happen. So... Like I, I, with Bowie, I was invited to a, rec, a recording studio, and I walked into the, you know, the the room, and and he he started playing me the the music, you know, really loud over these big studio monitors, and so now we're working, we're just working, you know, we're two people, I'm listening, and we're going to start talking, and you you get over that um, that starstruck quality pretty quick. You know, I remember once being at at a birthday party for John Stamos. And I was there and we were making a TV show together and he was nice enough to invite me because I did not belong at that, at that party because the star power was way over my head. But Tom Hanks was there mm. and I see them chatting and then I see Tom Hanks sort of see me and then he walks over or he, he has an exchange with John. And he walks over and he goes, Josh, great to meet you. I'm Tom. Like I heard you're working with John. And he starts asking me about myself. And I'm like, Tom Hanks, why are we talking about me? Like, you're Tom Hanks. But he knew that in no universe would I have ever felt comfortable to be like, 
I, he's the king, he's the star. And, and it was funny because John had mentioned at the end of the party, he's like, the reason why Tom is who he is, is that he went up to me and said, who's that kid? And he was like, oh, it's Josh. I'm working with him. I wanted to invite him. He's like, well, like, where's he from? And he's like, ah, he's from New York. He's like, cool, got it. And he just went in. I mean, there's like this, they're like politicians. Yeah. I mean, you're talking, you're, that's what I'm talking about, but the really great artist, the ones that are great artists on top of that, like yeah. Tom Hanks or David Bowie, they're interested in people. That's their, that's their stock in trade. You know, they have to be able to talk to people and, and learn new things and see what people are about and feeling in a somewhat natural way, or they're done. Right. They, they have nothing to work with anymore, you know? So it's almost a survival tactic. You know, I don't envy, I don't always envy them, you know? It's quite demanding to be one of those types of humans. Does it tend, do they ever, do you meet someone of that stature, and we don't have to name names, where they kind of break your heart, where they're disappointing? You know, disappointing? I, was, I was just about to say before you asked me, oh, and I'm really going to knock wood here, but I've been doing this for like 25 years where, you know, I'm working with extremely famous people. And many of them that I've idolized, and I'm, I'm, I'm really struggling to think of a, a situation where I've been disappointed. Um, there's one <laughs> that, but I wouldn't say I was disappointed. I anticipated that maybe it wasn't a person that I was gonna um, have a good feeling about, and that. Yeah, I won't name names, but I mean. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I almost got to work with Morrissey. I used to really idolize Morrissey. I mean, I still like him and his whole, I don't approve of some of his racist comments, obviously, but I used to really love his his, his sort of writerly, novelistic way of writing songs. I just loved him, and I was really afraid that he was going to be kind of snobby or something, but he was great. Yeah, I haven't had, I, I, honestly, I would give you some dirt, but I've been very lucky. It's so funny because I, I, I found that the more famous and legendary the people are, the cooler you know just generous and it's always like those mid-level people that are sort of like struggling like they've done a couple seasons on ncis or whatever and i'm like why do you suck it's not yeah but you know i bet all of those people had sucky periods like it's to be i wouldn't want to be famous anytime but i wouldn't want to be famous now fuck for forget it why oh my god this well what's what's in it for you Mm. what what do you really get out of it that's positive aside from too much attention. I mean, the money is good, I suppose. It's nice to have money and feel financially secure. But, um, I mean, I guess those people wouldn't trade it. I mean, I, I, haven't, I don't know. All I know is that I've had a lot of experience of being around it. I don't know what it's really like, but I see it's quite a lot of um, pressure and work and stress. I just did a commercial a little while ago with Lady Gaga, and I met her once or twice. She was, she might have been one of the coolest people and still is one of the coolest people I've ever met. I could see that. She was so, prof- and, and I got to say for some reason, maybe because it's her crazy image or something, you know, of these crazy costumes or this or that, that the, the crew, you know, a bunch of working class people are just like, what's she going to be like? And there was a little trepidation. Man, she, she just worked so hard, so polite, gave gifts to everyone at the end of the thing um just couldn't have been more amazing and everyone on the crew said it everyone said wow she was great 
Well, she was also the, she was writing the music for the Britney Spears before she was Lady Gaga. Mm. Like she was the one behind the scenes. And I also think like the fact, and she's publicly talked about like her struggling with her image or the way that she looks and what, and whatnot. Like, you know, I like, there's this weird governing thing that I think if it's indoctrinated in you early on, it somehow always gives you a level of humility. Like I was really fat growing up, like extremely fat. Yeah, me too. And on television fat. So now my awkward teenage years are in reruns. Mm -hmm. And so no matter what, it's like as impressed as I could get with myself in, in, in a moment of success, I'm, oh, I'm constantly reminded of like, yeah, but you're still this guy. Like you'll never, you can dress up and you can act the part maybe for a couple of days, but we all know who Josh really is. But you know, there's a natural insecurity that comes with youth and, and, and adolescence. And some kids seem to be able to shift the balance between the insecurity and some sort of confidence in their youth that mm. I never, I never had. And looking back, there was no reason why I shouldn't have had it. And I, that's one thing I try to remind my, my kids, I have two daughters, you know, you're really fucking cool and be, it's okay to be cool and feel that you're, and you're okay to feel cool about yourself because you're not going to be young again and you don't want to look back and go, oh shit, I should have kind of treated myself better or, or been okay, more okay with myself. It's, you know, because the insecurity is very seductive. It's very um, dramatic and um, easy, mm. you know? So I have a regret that even as a fat kid, I still... Looking back more objectively, I wasn't the dork, total dork that I, I just felt inside, and I could have had a lot more fun. <laughs> and you, but that's interesting, right? Because you talk about your childhood a little bit, and you said it was like rather normal, like slightly idyllic, and yet, like, so where do you think that was born out of that discomfort or insecurity? I mean, obviously, you were heavy set, but I imagine there was something deeper going on. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure this is the venue for that, but I mean, it was <laughs> idyllic in many, um, in all physical respects, I grew up on the um, in Glencoe, Illinois, where I were two blocks from Lake Michigan, which is that lake is so big it's like growing up on a beach. I'm on like a coast, you know. Yeah. So the beach was two blocks away, and it was like um, really idyllic Middle America, uh, pre-digital world, an analog world. Uh, but you know, I had all sorts of nasty, unpleasant things that you know, real the real world. Inter, you know, uh, interfered with that at times in, in ways that weren't mentally healthy for a child. And, you know, that you, and everyone has stuff like that. And you are processing that over the course of your adult life, usually. I'm, I'm doing it later today at my therapist. Yes. Yeah, so, well, therapy is a good thing. Isn't it great? If you, if you have a smart therapist, yeah. I've been seeing the same guy for 15 years. I'm not any better, but we're very close. It's good to talk about stuff right. with somebody that, that you know, that, that is, uh, is objective. Sometimes I ask them. the wise. We need wise older people to sometimes point us in a better direction. I, I like to ask them. I'll be like, be honest. <laughs> I'll say, are there some people that are just happy? like born happy and they don't contemplate life or the abyss. Like they're just kind of okay. Not that you meet any of them. Cause all you see are like, you know, sick fucks all day. Yeah. And he said, yeah, some people are just okay. Well, you know, Mike Lee made that great movie about it with Sally Hawkins. I can't remember the name of it about it now, but it was just about a young woman who was okay. You yeah. Know? And it was almost like she was treated like a freak. It's a fascinating movie. Uh, it's got happy in the title. I think I can't remember. Yeah. 
I love most Mike Lee's films. So, I, and I just want to, because I don't want to forget to ask this, but back to what you were saying really quick about making the, um, the, the Apple commercials. Were, did you work with Steve Jobs at all? Like, were you getting notes from Jobs? Yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, they would often come in the form of emails that were forwarded to me w- without his, you know, personal address. But I met him several times. I spoke to him on the phone once. Um, we traded emails. I did eventually, you know, I made like 35 or 36 Apple commercials. So I was like, Jeez. Uh, I did trade a few emails with him, but I met him at, a, at an Apple event once and was just a moron st- a kind of fanboy. And uh, But he was, he was in a really nice, you know, he was, he was, um, he was, you know, exacting as we know, but I mean, there was one time we made a commercial that was, everybody really liked, it came out really well, I think it was a Mary J. Blige one, and um, there was a shot that, in the spot that was just terrific of these female dancers just sort of striding forward very powerfully, and everyone just, it's something about the shot, it was just the angle and the lens and the way they just looked great, and we had finished the commercial and serviced it out into the world, and Steve said, you know, that shot's so great, it should be longer, and he said, well, we've already... Sent the, we've serviced it to every 50, 15, 50 countries. Yeah. He said, well, let, let's change it, though. Let's get it back and change it. And we added like six frames or something, and then reservice is a big deal. And six frames is half a second? It's less than half a second. Yeah, a quarter? Quarter of a second, yeah. Which, so the rumors were true, but I, I never experienced any um, bad Steve Jobs uh, experience. What was there anything that you took away specifically from your interactions with him where you had a moment where you were like, uh, like that sort of illuminated his genius or like a specific note you got where you're like, God, I, I wouldn't have seen it like that, that he sees things, things in a specific way. You know, first of all, I don't want to, I don't want to uh, exaggerate the relationship. You know, I only met him twice and a few emails, but, um, it was more over the course of, you know, nearly a, well, actually probably more than a decade of how his philosophy of marketing uh, would, would would just, a lot of it was understood by this team of advertising guys because that's all they did was Apple commercials. And so the whole culture of how to present your company just was baked in. But one thing that I took away was um, don't, I see a lot of, um, when I do commercials, I see a lot of clients going, well, we're spending a lot of money. So how much can we cram into the spot? Because if we're spending a million dollars, let's get a, more information in there. And so S- Steve was always about just have one great idea and do that well. And that's it. Make this, make your thing. You only have 30 seconds. Make it about one terrific idea. And don't it, it doesn't have to do everything. It just has to do one thing really well. Um, and I see a lot of people just don't understand that basic idea of how marketing works. You can throw a bunch of stuff at them and they tune out. When you met him, did he have the Steve Jobs uniform on? I met him after an event, uh, one of those, what do you call it, you know, keynote, keynote events. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, he had, he was wearing, he was Sick. healthy. He was healthy then. New balances, mock neck. Exactly, yeah. <sighs> Dad jeans, no God. belt, you know. no belt, no belt. I know, it's shocking. Trim guy though, he the, was he was he wasn't he was on the you know, pudgy then. Really? Yeah, he was just before he got ill. Ah, but I guess that's why you can get away without the belt. That's what holds it up. Yeah, fair. Um, so, so for you, like 
I, I'm always fascinated by these things of, I feel like super successful people feel the same amount of like insecurity or, or they go through, through a similar emotion that we all feel in, in the process of doing something. And then it's the ability in which to power through. So are there moments when you're attack, attacking a project or you're in the middle of it where you feel as though like maybe fraudulent, I'm projecting, but like, you know, the, the artist insecurities, like maybe I don't know how to do this, or maybe this is insurmountable, or maybe this isn't going to turn out the way that I had hoped. Well, A, of course, and B, you know, your, your uh, ability to handle stuff like that, if you're lucky, uh, matures as you mature. And um, I think when you're younger, you, you feel like you you can't show those vulnerabilities that you, and, and as you get older, and again, I'm lucky to work with a lot of the same people, like I have these relationships with craftspeople and crew people and stuff, so they kind of know me, we're like friends, but you know, the the more experience you have, you go just like, I don't know, I, I don't feel like I know what I'm doing, help me out, or, you know, or just start out going like, I'm super insecure about this guy, so here's what I'm worried about, tell me why I shouldn't be worried about this, you know, you just seek help, basically. Mm. When you're younger, you feel like you have to do it yourself or you'll look inexperienced or unprofessional if you say, I just don't know what to do here. So, you know, you rely on your collaborators. Sometimes it's just take a break. Just go, just, you know, I used to, I always have a, I have a bike and I, I would bring it, if I'm on a soundstage, so I'm in kind of one place, I'd always bring the bike along and th that moment would happen every day. And I said, I'm going to go right around the back lot for yeah. 15 minutes. It usually works too. You come back, you're refreshed, you have a new perspective on it and you figure it out. Yeah, you get the endorphins going. Just you just break the 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 um pattern of that this the, of what's not working and just stop it and start again. Maybe say hi to the tourists on the back lot tour. There's know? a great story. <laughs> well that that's literally true. There's a story, great story Jonah Hill told about he was doing a scene in um um what's the Wall Street uh, Wolf of Wall Street yeah. and it's a scene where he He's in a phone booth and he has to um, tell his boss he's quitting his job and he's going to go with Leo DiCaprio. And he just, he couldn't get it. He just was bad. Mm. And he did take after take and and uh, Marty wasn't giving him any notes. He would just, just do, 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 and he just felt it was just a disaster. And um, so Scorsese called an early lunch and uh, they sat and he figured, well, you know, Marty's going to tell me or help me out or, and he just sat next to him and read the newspaper for 15 minutes. Uh, maybe it wasn't lunch. It was like a, a break. Let's just take a break. I think is what it was. And, um, he just read a newspaper for 15 minutes next to him and it was awkwardly silent. And then Marty kind of slapped the arm of the chair and he said, okay, let's get back to work. And they set it up again and he killed it. That was, that's directing. Tell me more. Well, that was just, a, you know, a story of Jonah's, you know, he told that, that I just thought was like a great director, you know, with that experience knows that you just need to shift the energy. You don't, right. there's nothing you can say. There's no brilliant, you know, Stanislavski thing you're going to mention. You just, 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 this, that will work. And he knew it would work. Civic Tax Relief. 
If you are drowning in IRS tax debt, please get ready to take down this number to take advantage of new IRS tax forgiveness programs that may help free yourself from IRS collection agencies. The IRS has recently hired private debt collection agencies to start collecting your outstanding taxes. They can already garnish your wages, put liens on your property, and levy your bank account. If you are drowning in IRS tax debt, the people at Civic Tax Relief can help protect you from IRS collection agencies. Stop the added fees and wage garnishments and finally break free from the IRS. Call Civic Tax Relief for free information now. Find out about the Fresh Start program that is now available through Civic Tax Relief. Check out our outstanding four-star reviews from our clients. Civic Tax Relief's special tax hotline can help to discover all the relief programs you qualify for free. Just call 800-375-1173. 800-375-1173. Don't wait. The consultation is free. The information is free. This call could save you thousands. Call 1173. 800 So when you're working with actors, are you of the read the newspaper next to them, school? How? What's your approach like? Uh, well, you know, I've only made the two films. I wouldn't, I'm not, I wouldn't consider myself uh, anything but um, learning. Great films. <laughs> I love the films. Thank you. Huge fan. That's very nice. But like, what, I mean, is it, you know, you hear like people like Gus Van Sant who say that it's 95% casting. Yeah, I was going to say that. I mean, when I did Never Let Me Go... We had people banging down the door wanting to be in the movie. So we were able to cast, because of the book uh, that people love and I loved. And so, uh, I, you know, I had a spectacular cast <laughs> in that movie. Yeah. I mean, from, you know, even in the secondary roles, it was like Donald Gleason and Andrea Riceboro and Charlotte Rampling and Sally Hawkins. And they, they weren't the stars of the film. So these are immensely gifted actors. Carrie Mulligan, Andrew Garfield, Kieran Knightley. Uh, and so I had a relatively long rehearsal period. The rehearsal was very rarely about reading lines. The rehearsal was, I would decorate the rehearsal space in the style of the film. I had a video, I had a, a television showing the locations and you know, it was kind of like a slideshow of here's where, here's where we're going to be shooting. What, if we knew set designs, key props and things. And we would sit around and talk and, uh, you know, because we had younger actors um, playing their older incarnations. Um, so one day we just went to the location, the school location, and we just spent the day playing frisbee and croquet and, and hide and seek, just so they had a sense of being at the place. You know, things that aren't about the lines. Uh, and um, after that, because those actors are so gifted and because I think it was a pretty fruitful rehearsal Everybody knew the movie we were making, the tone of it, uh, what it was about, what, what the essential theme was, what the scenes were mainly about. And everyone kept saying, you know, you're not giving the actors any notes. You're not talking to the actors. I go, when I feel like I have a reason to give them a note or talk to them, I absolutely will. But if I don't, and it's just beautiful, that's fine, you know? And that's pretty much, I did very little directing 
on that movie. And so when Van Zandt says it's about the ca- casting, I mean, they were constantly doing things in scenes that were infinitely more layered and nuanced and true and, and surprising than I could have possibly ever told them. Um, so I think as I get older too, you realize that it's, um, you know, the job should sort of be, um, direction on a need to know basis or adjustments on a necessary basis. Uh, it's easier too. It's less work. (laughs) Yeah. You know, but I mean, if the essential point of the scene is being realized, well, it doesn't have to be how I pictured in my head or or this new this kind of rhythm of the syntax where you emphasize the syllable I don't give a shit about that. It's oh. funny. I interviewed Vincent D'Onofrio. He's like my number one pet peeve is when directors speak in metaphors. He's like it's just very simple. Directors don't want to have to translate. I mean, I'm sorry, actors don't want to have to translate what the director said into actable an actable note. Yeah. And I I find myself doing that and I smack myself in the head like I oh, just you know, you have to speak in, in a language that they don't have to translate. You know, you give them a result or a, and it's, it's a, it's a, you know, I'm still working on it. You know, it's like, I, the, I think the main thing is if you're impressed and blown away by what they're doing and you're a fan, just like I would, I was a fan of uh, David Bowie. It's just, you know, it's all gonna, it's all happening in a, in a kind of a soup of amazement and excitement and magic because you're, impre- you're, you're just being entertained. If I'm not entertained or engrossed sitting at the monitor, you know. Something's off. Yeah, We're so an, an audience won't be, you know. But then there's other times where you have to say, there are times where you have to say to an actor, the lighting, the sound design, the score, your clothes the thing going on behind you that you're not even paying attention to that's in the shot, that's out of focus, all of that's going to do a lot of heavy lifting. Fuck, that's so true. So you don't have to do it all yourself. You're a part of, uh, you're a, part of a mosaic of things, some of which aren't, isn't going to even get put onto it for, for six months. Right. And sometimes actors have to be reminded of that. Uh, God, that's so true. Man. I mean, if you're going to have like an orchestra of 90 musicians doing a sting, mm. you know, in that moment, you don't have to sell the whole thing. And, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. The, you get a nice swell of some violas, some strings. I got Roxy sitting next to me now just to keep the viewers, uh, I wasn't, or the uh, listeners. She was looking for some new, uh, uh, new forms of affection that I wasn't fulfilling. For. I get join the club. Um, but you know, it's so true too, when you speak to actors, cause I feel like an actor's plife is, finding a way in and how you know and whether it's it's rehearsing it a thousand times or working it working on it on my own it's like you'll never know when that that moment that breakthrough moment's going to happen where all of a sudden that character seems um <laughs> that character seems like possible and and your way in i remember my buddy worked on Che and said what a that, movie what a movie yeah and he said and he worked on props and and he said that Benicio would call him at night and say like i want to eat beef jerky out of something like can you build me like a little pouch that i would have inside my coat that i can pull out and and he's like sure i can get that done but that's the coolest fucking thing that's why you got to love actors and that craft yeah he uh, he likes um you know i worked with him on the wolfman which i didn't complete 
but I had a great lot of time working with him. What does that mean? He didn't complete. I didn't complete the film. I was, I left the film before it started shooting. I was gonna. I was direct the director of that film, and then I left. Uh, and they got another director before the first day of shooting. Yeah, it was like five, about five, uh, three, th- about five weeks out. I think we were. And why? Why was that? It wasn't going in the direction you wanted it to. Uh. I mean, that's a whole podcast probably, but, um, you know, we, we rushed that into production before, uh, a writer strike hit and then the writer strike hit. So we were in the middle of, we were in the middle of a greenlit hundred million dollar film and all of the line producers that the studio had hired said, this is going to cost 130 million. And so we're, I had to get 30 million out of it during a writer strike, which means we couldn't really change the script. Mm. Uh, and, and there, and on top of that, I think the studio wanted a different tone of film than Benicio and I were planning and coincidental to Che, he was off making Che and he, he couldn't really focus on the development of that process. And so when he came back to make the Wolfman, he came back to this very, um, what's the word, um, you know, fucked up situation, creatively okay. fucked. I couldn't think of a more eloquent term. I think that's appropriate. And uh, and so everybody was kind of unhappy, but we had to keep pushing forward. And I felt like the studio should hire someone that was going to fulfill their vision of it because they didn't like mine. Do you get do you get a call from the head of the studio who's like... I'm trying to remember. No, I kind of... There was just this contentious meeting where I just said, I think I think we should... You guys should find someone else. It takes a lot of balls. Well, you know, my whole family had moved to England, uh, new children, and I was worried about, you know, that I would get this reputation for being difficult, which I, I think maybe... You know, all the, I'm friends with all those guys now, and one of the guys runs Netflix, and I'm doing work with him over there. So it just was it just was one of those things that just went started to go pear shaped, and uh, it seemed like a a Titanic that I needed to get off early. Yeah, and um, other people could survive. Other people's careers could survive one failed film, but I didn't think mine could. Do you? So. When you're doing something like, and that came after off, off of one hour photo, right? That was yeah. your, would have been your second movie. So like, when you do something like one hour photo that's received so well, and you're probably being presented with many opportunities, where where's your head? What's your headspace like then when you're considering what to do next? Well, there you go. Maybe I made a bad choice. Like I, I felt like well. Everybody seemed to think that I was the guy that, because I had made some music videos that were like had big budgets, that I should be doing big, big budget things. And when you, you know, I had worked myself into a position with the music videos where I had a lot of creative freedom. But when you're on a hundred million dollar movie, uh, I mean, unless you've made huge hits and you're Chris Nolan or David Fincher or Steven Spielberg, that freedom isn't there. And I, and, um, I don't think I was suited to the studio process. Uh, and so it was, I thought, let me give it a try and see what it's like and see if I can function in that environment and do something cool. Because Benicio and I wanted to do a very kind of interesting Jungian nightmare horror film about a man who turns into a beast every night. And he's such a great actor. It just seemed like it could have been great. But um, 
the studio just didn't have the um, imagination to see what we were seeing, and I and I failed at expressing it to them in a way that made them feel confident, I guess. But I just, I, I sort of applaud you for having sort of the courage of your convictions in that way to walk away when it didn't feel right, because I feel like ego or, or whatever, it, for, and I, I can only speak to myself, there would have been so there would have been so many outside incentives other than the true art and the reason to make it to, to stick it out and hope for the best. Yeah. And, there's an understand. I think there's an unspoken understanding. It's kind of like joining the army. Like you, you know, it's a hun- it's a huge investment for this company. Yes. A, a public company. So, uh, like I'm not so naive that I think they're just going to write, give me a hundred million dollars to make an art film. Uh, but something about my manner at that time didn't make them feel safe at night that they're, they're, that I wasn't going to make something so too weird. Like we, I, I understood, I mean, most of the music videos and commercials I make, I understand the audience, I understand what their, their purpose is. And I understood that about this big studio film, but I also at the same time understood that audiences want something different and they want, they're not dumb. They want, they, you can make more nuanced stories on this scale and that's all we were trying to do and it just you know there's two sides to that there's this it's easy to say oh he was you know he stuck he didn't compromise and he stuck to his guns but you know there's another side that is you signed up for this and they've made a big investment they're going to lose money now because if you quit because they have to replace you and the production has to shut down for a certain amount of time and I took all that very very seriously and it was you know it was only because there didn't seem, I had lost my, it was a very demanding, big, complex, exhausting movie to make. And the, the nature of this particular circumstance uh, made me kind of just lose my, my spark about it. And then I didn't see a way forward because I'd, I was just sort of, um, had been already enervated by the whole thing before we even started shooting. I mean, not comparable at all, but I made a 3D breakdancing movie for Sony a few years ago. You've probably seen it. And, uh, and, but I remember it was based on this great documentary called Planet B-Boy. And mm-hmm. so Screen Gems wound up buying the doc and wanted to make a theatrical version. And the director of it was like this incredibly nice, smart guy. But I guess for whatever reason, because it was his first theatrical film, it he wasn't checking the boxes off for the studio. Yeah. So this sort of tyrannical studio head at the time of Screen Gems felt the need to fly to France where we were making the film and take over his director. While the director, the real director, just had to sort of stand by and mm-hmm. watch this. And it's like, and I could have totally understood him saying, fuck yourself, I'm out of here. And then I totally understood him just sort of standing there being like, I'm giving this opportunity. It's a $20 million studio film. I've never made a movie. My name will be on this, even though it definitely won't be what I want. And God, it just, I, I felt my, my heart went out for him so much. Cause well, you know, one of the things we wanted to do was make it um, unlike other films like that. Uh, those sort of universal monster movies or whatever, or films that are contemporary films that were made on that scale for studios. We, I wanted it to be really scary. And I, my, and I had a theory that if you really are believing everything you're seeing, it'll be scarier. Meaning I didn't really want, I wanted it to be great looking, but I wanted it to be really historically accurate to our period mm. so that you felt like this was a real world 
and this is what it was like then. And then this really scary thing was happening in that very real world, not a movie movie world. And then, but, and that was my one of my main intentions. And it wasn't because I like that or I don't like that or that's my subjective taste. I thought we're making a horror film. Horror film should be scary. I think that's one way that it can be scarier. Sure. And then we got a directive that there can't be any smoking or facial hair. Sick. And the film took place in the late uh, 18th century, uh, 19th century, where all men had facial hair and all men smoked. Right. And, you know, so... Yeah. You were like, we're off the tracks here, guys. Well, but I just like, then I, yeah, but that was like that in a series of other things. I, I went, um, I, I don't know. I don't know what my job is anymore. Mm. It's dangerous to talk about this, you know, because I like, I don't, I, I know I have a reputation, I think as being difficult and I, I really don't think it's earned. And I think people that don't know the story of that film, they go, oh, well, if he got fired by a studio, he must be difficult and. You know, but I, how do you make 35 films for Apple? You know, they're not going to come back 34 times. I mean, 35 ads if you're difficult. Nobody with a brain would think that. I mean, uh, back to our opening, you know, sort of question. Like, I think, you know, there's no way around it. There, I've worked in, I've been lucky enough to work with directors who I've had like immense respect for and been so lucky and I always say that the through line with the directors who I've loved working for was that I felt like they were fans of what I did and that it was a true parental relationship in the in the sense that I had enough uh, they gave me enough slack to sort of go and explore but if I got into trouble they were pulling me back yeah 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 and it was so lovely and I've also had directors who've been like where I felt completely untethered and I've just been like just give me something you know, because I know I don't have, I. there's a good chance I don't have the best idea here. Yeah. And um, so I, I think that's inspiring. But I was thinking about that with Robert Altman, you know, because you mentioned Vincent D'Onofrio, and he tells a great story about, um, he said, I've worked with actors that are, I mean, directors that are so versed in, in, in acting, acting theory, acting methods. Mm. They know how to talk to actors. They Many of them have been actors. Uh, if I get in trouble, they have a great way to help me out of it. Um, and the films aren't any good. He said, then I worked with Stanley Kubrick and Robert Altman. He said, I used to beg Robert Altman for any scrap of any information. And he would say, you know, you know, Vince, it's a great question, but I, I've got this emergency over here. I'm going to get back to you on that. <laughs> and he never would get back to you. And that was a technique. He just didn't really like to, he just liked a, form, a certain amount of freeform chaos and that he could sculpt. And that was his method. He said, Stanley Kubrick said to him once, what his direct, he said, Stanley Kubrick was a terrible actor's director. He didn't know anything about acting uh, language or acting techniques. He, Vincent said, one time Kubrick said to me, just do it better, Vincent. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. But he said, who made great films? Right. You know, Altman and Kubrick would make the great films. He said, I want to work with a filmmaker who's going to make the great films and, and, and end up with those moments somehow, you know. Um, so there's lots of ways to, you know, peel an onion. I've heard about, and I've... I'm uh, one of the great directors who would just sort of say like, you think that's the best you got? <laughs> Cause I'll move on. Like if that's the best you got, let's do, let's go. But if you got one more, let's try it. Yeah. I mean, you know, every actor is different and you can joke with some and you can't joke with others. Some people are really about physical things. Some people are really cerebral. 
the cerebral ones, sometimes you got to get them out of their heads. The physical ones, you got to make them think a little more. And, but a lot of the time, you just, it's great. What was Robin Williams like? Um, he, I, if you put a gun to my head and asked me to think of something negative to say, even in the slightest way, I could not do it. Mm. That's an honest, an honest thing. He's just utterly great person i mean if he had any character flaws that he was a you know want he really wanted to be liked yes uh, and um almost in a in a in a boyish way he would go, uh, lean over backwards to he used to buy gifts for people a lot like he used to he bought me a lot of gifts just out of the blue he just really it was important to be liked um yeah i mean just a wonderful man i mean we obviously could talk about him for hours and the amount of uh, inspiration I got from him. And like when I, when I was going to make my first movie, one hour photo, I'm just a music video guy. I didn't know that I would even be able to get an actor. You know, why would an actor think I had any ability to direct a film or direct an actor? And, um, you know, when he agreed to do the film to my face on the first meeting, it was like a real turning point in my life where someone of real, uh, real ability and, and renown and esteem said, I want to work with you. And that changed my life, you know? Was Psy sort of fully realized? Was it, did Robin go off and create this guy? Was it, did you guys work together to build it? Or was he just, you know, sort of going off the script and his interpretation? Yeah, the script wasn't particularly descriptive and specifics about the character or how he appeared. And so um, he, he used to work with a hair and makeup person who also did prosthetics, like a really gifted person. She didn't need, always need to do prosthetics, um, but she could when, when necessary. And we just, um, we looked at a lot of photographs of guys and talked about it a lot. And I did have kind of an image in my head of it, and but I didn't want to impose it on him. And we did sort of get around to that place and... Um, did a lot of photoshopping of of these kind of glasses and this kind of hairstyle and this kind of hair color and a mustache or not until we kind of dialed in a look. It, it's just in terms of the look. He see, he had a real handle on the guy uh, um, from the get-go. Yeah. But the look was a little bit of a process, but it was pretty easy. I feel, did you feel like... I wanted him to disappear. I did want it, I, I didn't, we needed to find a, a fine line between like a big stunty performance where, you know, he's has prosthetics or something mm. and just changing him enough that you could forget you're looking at Robin Williams, but with, but trying to keep it natural. You know, he gained some weight. He just sort of started, stopped exercising and I thought he was very um, uh, unvain uh, in the way that he let us kind of cut his hairline back. He used to call, he had this little tuft of hair in the film and we, he used to call it Mr. Tuffington. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like bleach blonde. Like I feel like guys that I see with like, who are over 40 with that weird bleach blonde. I'm like, you're like, you're, have, you have like animal carcasses in your closet. <laughs> like something weird's happening here. Well, it was kind of based on a real guy. I used to live um, in West Hollywood when I first moved to LA and there was a guy at a, one of those CVS Rite Aid kind of places, and and he made a big show of of his job, and he, he just it wasn't that he was narcissistic; he just was trying to be entertaining and make the day fun for people. And there, but there was something really sad about it, and that was the birth of that character. It was based on a real guy, and he, he had like boot black 
Like he it was his dyeing his hair black, which made him look older. Yeah, one of those guys. And in the moment, what you know, I've only met Robin once, and he and he was as wonderful and as as lovely as, as you're saying. And just from an outsider's perspective, who didn't really know him, I got so much of that people pleasing energy to a point where, like, I felt bad. Like it seemed exhausting at times for him to always be on in the way that he was. It, it, did you feel that like day to day? Like sometimes, like God, I wish. I, it's I interesting, but he loved it. Like I don't right. think it was. I don't think it. Was, but I mean, I I got to know him pretty well, and uh, we, you know, we really did become friends. Our families went on vacations together, and we used to just. I get to. I got to just hang out with him. This is well after one hour photo. We just like walking around New York, or walking around San Francisco, and I got to really see how he interacts with people. Um, I mean, I think. Um, yeah, I guess he got exhausted. I would see him when he was off. But he'd be on even with me or me and my wife. He would just be on. I think he just, he, I think he got high from ma- making people laugh. I think he was totally addicted to it. No question. It was a physical, mental, emotional addiction mm. because he got a zap of, of, of endorphins or whatever from making. And the harder he could make you laugh, the more of a zap he would get. It's a superpower. It, yeah. I mean, uh, we were driving, we were in Lake Tahoe once driving from Lake Tahoe. We decided we'd go to a casino in Reno for fun. And we ended up getting there. It's just a bunch of old ladies and old, uh, and, and, uh, the ride from like at night in the dark, the ride from Lake Tahoe was me, his what Marsha and my wife. And he was on for the 40 minute ride in, in a enclosed little car. I thought I was going to have to open the window to throw up. I was laughing so hard. <laughs> he did it. And and he, he just, you know, it's just me and we were friends. Like he didn't have to entertain us. Mm. He, it just was a natural mode. Uh, I'll, it was one of the great moments of my life. He, he did, he imitated, he started making up a song as Billie Holiday, high on heroin, but as a 78, scratchy 78, playing at an irregular speed. Jesus. And the song was, I can't remember what the song was about, but it was something we just passed on the road. And um, yeah, I thought I was going to have to leap from the car because I was going to choke from laughter. Man. I will say something though, you know, my, the lucky, another lucky phenomenon for me of working with all these like gifted superpower people is that it's really different experiencing it in the physical space near them. And when they're moving the air and the molecules around right in front of you, as opposed to watching them on a movie screen or a television screen, it's a whole different, even more powerful experience. Really? Yeah. Like watching Michael Jackson dance from as far away as I am to you, as opposed to seeing it on a television screen. It's, it's, uh, it's like the um, undiluted, the uncut drug. Untuckit.com. Untuckit. Hey, nice shirt. Why is it tucked in? Oh, are you embarrassed? Because your shirt is weirdly long and you want to look classy, but you also want to like have a level of fun and fancy free. So you don't want to be tucked in guy, Captain Formal, Mr. You don't want to look like a narc at the party. You want to fit in but you want a properly fitted shirt that you can wear and not tucked in. And that's where Untuck It comes in because Untuck It is the brand you've been looking for. 
They're the original untucked shirt, a modern solution to an old problem with no tucking or tailoring required. No matter your size or shape, their shirts are the perfect untucked length. I mean, I've been, I've been frustrated with shirt buying in the past. So let me be honest. Listen, I've got an interesting body, okay? And that's being kind. We all know my, my journey, where I've come from. Packed on the pounds, took them off, and back again. You know what I'm saying? But Untuck It allowed me to find the perfect shirt for my body because they have more than 50 fit combinations, okay? So Untuck It shirts look great on tall, short, slim, and athletic guys of all ages. You can browse online. You can check out their brick-and-mortar stores. That means a store that really exists. I'm telling you, it's a whole it's a whole experience. So you can try it on in person at one of Untuck It's 50 stores or go to untuckit.com to get started. They even offer free shipping and returns on all orders in the U.S. So you don't even have to worry. You can save 20% on your first order by using my code CURIOUS at checkout. That's untuckit.com, promo code CURIOUS. You know, you watch like, and obviously it was 15 years later, but you watch the movie that Kenny Ortega directed when they were Michael's last sort of tour. And the handling of Michael seems so specific in that. Like, it was kind of like a kid, like... There was, uh, there had to be a lot of hand holding and encouragement. So you getting him sort of in the nineties at, at, you know, practically the height of, of Michael Jackson, what was it like being in that energy and around that? Um, well, I don't, I wonder, you know, first of all, he's gone and I don't know how discreet I should be about all of this stuff, you know, I mean, uh, but he was surrounded by a lot of sycophants and um, I don't know how to describe it. You know, people who whose interest was in making themselves essential to him mm. because he was a meal ticket, uh, an unprecedented kind of meal ticket. And um, Janet hadn't really seen him in a while at that point. They just, you know, drifted apart for a few years and hadn't, you know, like any family, they hadn't seen each other. And she saw the people that were around him and, and was very unhappy about it and tried to uh, not warn him but express her view that maybe some of these people didn't have his best interest at heart. And by then I think he had been so manipulated by some of them that he couldn't really hear it. Um, but that's – there was an unusual hubbub of craziness, I would say, around him. You know, that was unfortunate and – that's I don't know what else to say about it. What What were you most impressed by about his sort of approach to things? Like, was he, uh, you know, was he exacting? Was he? He was exacting only about how dance was filmed, hmm. because I think he was expert at that. And sometimes I there was one moment when I was going to do when we did the dance between Janet and. Michael and I put the camera on it with a wide-angle lens very low to the floor uh, and he said, no, 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 it should be at waist level and you shouldn't distort the silhouette. Uh, and I understood that, I understood what he meant and I wanted, just wanted to have that wide shot for a flash, but he literally made me lift the camera up to like belt buckle height so that the, the, the shapes he was making wouldn't be distorted and you know, you had to respect that. If it's not Michael Jackson saying that, do you say no? You, yeah, I might have, I think I was a little cowed. I might have said, well, this is just a master shot and we're not going to use it as a main thing and let, let's just grab it. 
But uh, yeah, I think at that point I was a little intimidated. I was like, yes, Michael. Okay, let's move it up. Okay, yeah. everybody get that camera. Get it up there. Come on. What, what, are, we, what are we waiting yeah, for? Yeah, Michael wants it up. Let's move it. Yeah. I mean, um, he also, you know, there's a funny story. Is like I edited that with a great editor friend of mine named Robert Duffy, and he has a place in Venice. And we worked one night till about 10 o'clock, and I got tired and left. And he called me uh, at like 1 in the morning because he stayed to work longer to do my notes and stuff. And he said, Michael's here. I go, what? Oh, shit. Yeah, he said, he just drove, he just came over. He's sitting, he's giving me notes. I go, no. How did I, and I go, and he goes, he climbed over the wall. I said, what? He goes, yeah, he was ringing the bell and I didn't hear it because I was in the back. And so he climbed over the wall and I just looked over and he was standing in the doorway. <laughs> oh, my ne- God. And he had never met him. So there's an example of, you know, he just, he wanted to, Get and I said, hands. well, do what, he, do what he says. You know, it's like, it's, try any anything he says you know and i think he was there um to make um a musicality to how the dance was presented and how can i say this without seeming indelicate he was trying to make it maybe blacker the hmm. rhythms of the editing robert is a great editor but he's he's a surfer dude and maybe doesn't maybe his biorhythms aren't african-american biorhythms and so that's that was what he was doing and it was like actually quite effective and really interesting and most of those cuts as i recall probably stayed in the final thing wow he didn't make that many adjustments but you know he he wanted to play and it was really cool i i was tempted to drive over there but i i wanted my friend robert to have this amazing experience that's unreal so when you talk about like these collaborators like Robert and, and Harris who you worked with for you know so many projects I'm interested to know like wh- where does where does your vision sort of I, I guess it's of course it's all one but where does your vision end and theirs begin like how do you explain when working with someone like Harris like your vision and then all of a sudden he takes that or he took that and then made, you know, heightened it. Yeah. I always hated that word vision. It sounds so pretentious. It does. Yeah. I, mean, I hated even saying it. I yeah, hated myself I mean, saying I, it. I, I would never say it that way. But I mean, you know, the thing is about the music videos was like there was a freedom in a sense that it was just experimenting and that and that trying stuff was expected and that they wanted kind of odd weird ideas it was you know somewhere in between commercial filmmaking and pure art film non-narrative you know so the whole thing just had a sort of there wasn't this sense of like mark's vision of the thing it was just like it's a music video let's have fun let's oh you've got an idea that's that's cool like i would have a vision you know i have an idea of what i wanted it to be but I realized that people like Robert Duffy or Harris Savitas and many other people I worked with were frankly infinitely more experienced and gifted than I was. And I was just trying to kind of incorporate their contributions and learn. Uh, and yeah, so it wasn't that serious, you know, like when it's a movie, you feel like, well, this has the potential maybe for some more lasting value and it's a more substantial mm. thing. And so let's get it a certain way and let's be more cautious with music videos you didn't want it to get heavy and with let's paint by numbers so but so at that point sometimes you, the whole idea or the vision emerged from something he's someone else that harris or robert tried or mentioned months ago and so it's in some ways it's not even my idea it's like oh there's that thing he said let's let's play around with that 
So to that end, are you like sort of just planting the seed and then just letting them take it to wherever they see fit? No, because then it could just spin out into chaos and a mess. I mean, yeah, you're 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 just corralling and nudging and massaging and you know, I I do liken it to a little bit to an orchestra conductor where you know you've got the trumpets and you go okay, you guys have to lay back a little here and hmm. or give it a brassier sound and and Harris, you know, let's you, you can be more dramatic here. Let's just turn turn a couple of lights off and. And do we need all these lights? Maybe it's stronger with just this one bright light. Or, you know, you just, you or, you orchestrate t- other people's talent into a hopefully har- harmonious, cohesive thing, you know, so it's not a mess. That's what directors do. They, they direct traffic. So, okay, so I only have a, a few more questions, but I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask, what's Rick Rubin like? <laughs> Have you ever been in a sauna? It's so I've funny. heard a lot about it. Every one of these questions are an entire podcast. Into, under the, you can <laughs> easily talk about Rick Rubin for I don't know how long these podcasts are. but It's all right. We'll come back. You know, Rick is a mix between some, like, you know, chubby Jewish kid who grew up in Long Island and a, a genius, a uh, minimalist Zen Buddhist master. And it's this strange high and low uh, that and and he's developed a philosophy, not unlike Harris Savitas's, by the way, of um, you know a lot of what I've been talking about. You know, of of listening, uh, finding out. Well, and I don't mean listening to music. I mean listening to what the artist's goals are, or hopes and dreams are, or what where their blind spots are, or what is the theme of this, or what is this. You know, and then trying to um, get at the essence, or at least understand the essence of a thing, and then do a, do only what's necessary to make that strong and natural. Uh, he's he's a kind of Taoist in that way, where he'll list just doesn't do a lot, you know, but there's a mastery happening, um, and and a, he, I think. When he strips things away the way he does, he gives you confidence that you can be stripped away, that you're good enough, that you don't need the bells and whistles, and that brings, I think, a confidence and an excitement to the artists, that I can be naked and that it's okay. Um, I don't know what else to say about Rick. I mean, he's become... He's changed a little. He's had had a baby and he got married, so he's a family man now, so it's a... A different phase in his life. And to my knowledge, it's all the ear, right? He doesn't play an instrument. Like, he's been produced some of the greatest music ever, and yet he doesn't actually play anything, right? No, I don't think he does. That's I mean, he play, he can play the turntables. Right. Yeah, I mean, he's a DJ. I've seen him do it. He does it with the CDs now. But, um, no, I don't think he, I don't think he reads music or plays any, I've never seen him play an instrument. He's got it. Bitchin' sound system though in his house. Oh, I would, I would. He's got like a, I don't like a three hundred fifty thousand dollars sound system, and then he's got like the walls in the room are painted with this Swedish sound absorbing paint that's like you know thousand dollars a square foot or something. I've got the Sonos sound bar Mm -hmm. in my house. I don't know if you've heard it's about nine hundred bucks. I'm a fan. Um, And then the other question I wanted to ask is like, have you found a, a a commonality uh, a thread amongst to have worked with these greats in in so many different facets be it 
you know, all these incredible musicians you've worked with and then someone like Robin or even sort of in a slightly further way, Steve Jobs. Like, is there any commonality that you notice, a trait that all these greats possess? Um, you know, it's funny, you, you, a lot, we've been talking a lot about exactitude and perfectionism and visions and all this. <laughs> I mean, if what popped into my head is that they don't micromanage, mm. they, um, make, uh, um, I was trying to think who else was like this or was just working with, oh yeah, Jay-Z is like this. Beyonce's like that. Um, they pick the right people. They give them a sense of confidence that they've been chosen because they're they're gifted, and they tell them in broad strokes what they're after. They allow the creative people to be creative, and give very minimal notes that are always really uh, very rarely about something trivial. But it could be a trivial thing that has a non-trivial effect on the on the on the thing you're doing, and I think. That that's why they're so productive is that they uh, they um, channel their energy only into ne- sort of the necessary notes. And it's kind of form of genius where they can look at something and go, "That's the problem." Mm. And but they don't go, "I don't like that dress," and I didn't like that. And can you pan a little to the left? And I, you know, they don't get into that shit because it's a, because they understand it. It's it's unimportant, but they can spot the thing that is making it less than it could be. And then that's all they do. And, they, and, they, and they're more productive that way because it takes less energy. But it, t- it takes less energy, but you, it has that little ne- necessary thing first of being a genius. Right. Yeah. Um, okay, last question that I ask everyone who is on the podcast. What are your one or two um, Mark commandments, truths that you have discovered over your journey on this earth that you would want to impress upon someone else? Wow. I mean, I spend a lot of time trying to distill this. Like, what makes something objectively good? Objectively good Hmm. in art. Not, I like it, or it's not my cup of tea, or I really like, I don't like abstract art, or I I don't like opera, I don't like country music. Like, those are tastes. But what makes something objectively good? And I, I try to, I've been trying to figure that out. And there was an interview that Stanley Kubrick gave, a radio interview when he was promoting Lolita, I think, and the interviewer asked him to enumerate ways he thought that you could improve the, the movie business. And he listed a bunch of things. I don't remember what they were. Uh, and at the end of it, he said, and I feel that these are some ways that both filmmakers and studios can make films that are both more daring and more sincere. And, I, and that hit me like a ton of bricks. I went, daring and sincere. If you can have those two things in your work, mm. you're on to something. Daring means we haven't quite seen it before. It's something fresh, something new. You're showing us the world in a new way, or we're hearing the world in a new way. Or you're, you, uh, but it has to come from a sincere place, a, a, real, a real genuine idea about this human condition and something you really passionately want to say about it that you really mean. You sometimes get one and not the other. You get a very daring film and it's kind of bullshit or it's just like they thought it would please people. And yes, they, 
they shot it all at Disneyland on an iPhone, but you know, there's nothing really sincere in it. Yeah. And sometimes you get these deeply sincere films. Sometimes back in the day at Sundance, you'd see a lot of these films, but you know, they they come from a very passionate and sincere, uh, emotional place. But you know, we've seen like we've seen it a hundred times. If you can get both of those things together, uh, then you're onto something. That's what I think, you know. And I, I yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah. Thank you. This was awesome. Thanks for having me and Roxy here. Thanks for letting me hang out with Roxy. I feel like we've. Do we have any questions close. for Roxy? Roxy, what's it like being a dog in the Hollywood Hills? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. Alrighty, nice to talk to you. Pleasure. That was it. That was Mark. Interesting, no? Roxy the dog, so cute. An adorable dog. Uh, anyway, guys, have a great week. Love ya. Take care. Talk soon. Bye.